0: Thank you for downloading this episode of Software Gone Wild, a podcast focused on everything software-defined. To get more episodes and explore other SDN and network automation resources, visit sdn.ipspace.net.
1: Welcome to another hardware-defined episode of Software Gone Wild. You might remember the episode that we did with Luke Gori, where he said, I hate smart NICs. I would love to have a stupid NIC where the only thing it would be able to do would be to receive a byte and send a byte and let me handle everything else in between, including framing and FCS and all that. Luke is a software developer and I think he did go a bit too far, but nonetheless, there is this whole other group of people who believe in smart nicks or intelligent nicks or whatever you want to call them. And today, I have a group of them on the call. I'll try to do this in alphabetical order. Andy Gospodarek from Broadcom, Jerzy Pirkov from Mellanox, and Orr also from Mellanox. Welcome. Thanks for having us. Let's start with Andy again in alphabetical order. Andy, what are you doing at Broadcom and how did you get involved with Linux kernel networking and what are your pet projects?
2: So I've been doing Linux kernel networking since the early 2000s. A lot of experience with architecture and implementation of hardware offload, uh, as well as acceleration of Nix, ASICs. I did that while I was at various companies, uh, first at Red Hat, then at Cumulus Networks, and now at Broadcom. Uh, my sort of latest... GIG is I'm mostly interested in looking at the value of of offloading both control plane and data plane to uh, ARM-based smart NICs for target for data center servers, uh, but also for a wide variety of applications. There's some pretty interesting ones that that we're seeing. And uh, that's my biggest technical pet project right now.
1: Yuri, you work for his competitor for Mellanox, right?
0: That's true. Yeah, I worked there for about four years now, mainly on W driver which is uh, a driver for our uh, Spectrum ASIC, which is basically a switch, uh, top-of-right switch. I've been working on a couple of areas in, uh, in Linux networking, like DevLink, TC, TeamDriver, and that's about it. And finally, Or.
3: Hi, so I'm also with uh, Mellanox, and I'm uh, working on the other product line of Mellanox, the Connectix, which is uh, the NIC series. I'm involved with Linux Kernel also since uh, 2005. Initially, I was with Voltaire, which was later acquired by Mellanox. And then that time, I was mainly dealing with uh, InfiniBand and then RDMA over Ethernet and storage. About 10 years ago, I shift my focus to work on, uh, on networking and virtualization. But I'm not sure we did the right thing on those years, because when SRIOV was uh, started, it was pushed hard by Intel and Mellanox, um, maybe even 10 years ago. We came from an approach which I don't think uh, was eventually the correct one, and we will elaborate more today. Somehow, in the last few years, we realized that SRIOV doesn't catch up from various reasons, and one of the reasons is that it simply doesn't use the kernel software model for Nix, which is used on, power of, on the power of virtual world, and this was not due to lack of hardware capabilities. It was just due to a wrong uh, concept. And uh, today we'll be happy to explain what paradigm shift we did uh, over the last years. It was uh, something called the SwitchDev approach. And we normalized to a large extent SRV technology to be used under the kernel switching model for NICs, for virtual switches. And this is my main focus over the last years. And now I'm trying to turn into, I'd like to work with Andy, so I'm trying to put my focus now on SmartNICs also. Melonx um, is introducing SmartNIC this year, so we are also going there.
1: Okay, so before we go into any further details, now that you mentioned SRIOV, did I understand correctly that you are trying to model the virtual interfaces in SRIOV as virtual ports on a virtual switch sitting on NIC
3: ASIC? Right. This is what we're doing, and this is uh, upstream in Linux since kernel 4.8 that we built kind of representation for this software representation for those uh, virtual ports. And this representation is formed as Linux Net device, which is something natural for virtual switches like Open OpenVSwitch or other controllers. And this actually paved the way to formally and properly integrate with the kernel software model. Unlike before, where you had virtual function, but you didn't have any way to provision uh, the virtual switch from the hypervisor, other than that, assigning a Mac or VLAN filter that you could not use uh, over the networks, you cannot use connection tracking, you cannot use everything which is kind of standard for power virtual networking.
1: Ah, so effectively you plug the virtual function into the wrong place in the Linux networking stack?
3: No, the virtual function is the virtual NIC, and this resides in the VM. Okay but what was missing is a proper representation of the virtual port of the virtual switch, of the port of the virtual switch. Ah, okay. When you deal with virtualization, so your hypervisor becoming a rack, right? So you need a top of the rack, virtually top of the rack. It was very natural when KVM was introduced to Linux, they didn't have to almost invent anything regarding networking because all, all the infrastructure was there. The Linux bridge or the all the facilities that allowed to build a virtual switch were right for power virtual networking. Because in power virtual networking, you have the front end, Nick, which sits on the VM, and the back end, which sits on the hypervisor, which you plug into the virtual switch. And this piece was missing for SRRV. And we did it a couple of years ago. Again, it's not something special to Mellanox. We pushed that. But we had uh, greater partners, uh, Netronom, Broadcom, and a couple of more uh, companies, which is always upstream. Okay. And
1: now let's recover from this deep dive. Sorry for the interruption. I yet again managed to put us totally off track. Before we go into any more interesting details, I started the podcast by using the term smart nick and dump nick. And these are probably not the proper terms. So how would you categorize different nicks that we have on the market and how would you call them?
2: So we'd really break these into three categories, I think. As you mentioned in the previous podcast that you had, I think that there is a desire by some to have NICs that are not super featureful in terms of their ability, their hardware capabilities or hardware abilities. And maybe we call that a standard NIC. Some might call it a performance NIC. Some might call it a feature NIC. But we really group these into one category. These are NICs where the primary use case and the primary concern is packets in and packets out. And that's it. The less hardware assistance that exists, in some cases, the better, but it's just reality. Some people don't want to use it that way. Sort of break that into a second category of accelerated NICs that I think that Orr referenced just a minute ago, that vendors like Mellanox and Broadcom and Intel and Netronome have these these hardware accelerated capabilities where data plane forwarding or transformations can be handled completely by hardware. So in this case, you still have control plane that needs to be handled by the CPUs, the data plane traffic can disappear from the servers effectively and uh, can just go directly to the VMs or in some cases, if the traffic needs to just be sent back out of the device, the traffic can go in and out of the server without ever being touched by the CPU cores. I would classify that as an accelerated NIC. And in the case of the work that Mellanox has done with the MLXSW driver, I would say that accelerating the switching ASICs is the same capability and, and same interest there that you're looking at forwarding data plane traffic in a networking ASIC, but still control plane. So anything that controls dynamic routing or anything else like that, control plane still runs on the host CPU. And then sort of the third category, I would call it a smart NIC or an offload NIC, although the the term smart is at times a little bit confusing, which is I want to try to take the opportunity to define that difference. So with a true smart NIC, I would feel like all of the features that I just talked about with an accelerated NIC are there, but also the control plane can be handled completely by the NIC hardware. Now to some folks, this might seem a little bit concerning if you wanted to have a server with complete control and all of a sudden now your NIC might be managing something for you. But all this is possible because many of these NICs now have embedded ARM processors for the most part, and they're extremely powerful without being too power hungry. And you can run and control a full Linux distribution on them. And so what you can do is you can take some of your server workload that might even be handling control plane traffic because at times that can be costly, and move that all the way down to the NIC. So now your server is freed up to actually do compute rather than having your server be the device that's responsible exclusively for doing a packet forwarding, packet transformation, and communication with the outside world from a control plane standpoint. So that's kind of three categories, a standard NIC, an accelerated NIC, and an offload NIC, or a smart NIC.
1: Okay, so a smart NIC would effectively be a full-blown computer. With its own CPU, RAM.
2: That's right. Sometimes we actually, when we're out describing this to many people, we say it's a server inside your server.
1: Yeah, that reminds me of the good old days of a Vax 11/780 with a PDP-11 used to boot the Vax. Sorry for the reference. Anyway, what parts of the control plane would you offload to that smart NIC? How would you use it?
2: So the, the places we're seeing the most interest is any network workload that has a fairly heavy kernel control plane component <laughs> or user space. So in the example that Orr talked about earlier, one of the first areas where we created this this parallel between the SRIOV data plane implementation in hardware and the implementation in the kernel was with OpenVSwitch. And the cost of processing new flows, adding new flows, directly to either the OVS data path or into hardware, that cost is expensive enough that if you're able to move that load down to your SmartNIC, you actually can free up you know, a core or two or more, depending on how much traffic you're handling, to actually run uh, VMs or run other workloads, run containers, whichever, however you want to define those. So in that case, I think switch is a great candidate for that. I also think things like FRR, we know that Within a lot of large-scale data centers, people are routing all the way into hosts. So now, if you did not require that any host also run the routing daemon, if you could run that routing daemon on the NIC, that would be a huge advantage from an operational efficiency standpoint, and really probably from a complexity standpoint. So now you don't have to compile multiple versions of FRR or multiple versions of whatever your routing agent might be. You can do that on the NIC. Additionally there's interest in doing any firewalling or any filtering, any control like that. I think having the ability to have a network administrator have some involvement in the, the control of the data plane and control plane on your server is at times very beneficial.
3: I'd like to extend what yeah. Andy said. Mm-hmm. So Andy, we were talking about offloading. And two more very important episodes, I think. Are, one is uh, going to what people, I think, call bare metal clouds. Like you provide the tenant actually the hypervisor. You don't provide them a, a VM or container. And because they might be untrusted or either they don't know how to provision uh, what has to go to, to the network, you, you do it from the smart NIC. So it doesn't matter if the, the tenant is using a virtual function or they use some hardware function for a container. You still build your uh, uh, virtual switch model within the smart NIC. And from there, you do the, all the traffic engineering, like overnight networks, connection tracking, and so on. This That's is- right. There's one thing. And going from there, the next step would be, and I think Andy, you kind of uh, hinted to that on that. And I wanted to uh, expand that is that if some application from the cloud provider or from whoever runs on the hypervisor, they would need to write their code for a bunch of hypervisors. And once they can run within the smart if you give them a fully open source Linux advanced operating system, they can run their code there and it makes life much easier for them. That's right.
2: Thank you for bringing that up. That's, these are the, one of the main use cases that we see, and I'm sure you do too, that where SmartNICs are really resonating with people. Because there is this bare metal cloud and this leasing of bare metal servers, uh, whether it's to internal, external customers of a particular data center. And that's where the SmartNIC is really very powerful from a flexibility and a, some would say like an air gap standpoint, that you can protect people from themselves and protect your network, as well as roll out policy. So it's, it's a little bit of a different paradigm than what we're used to, you know, some might say, oh, I'm really concerned about offloading something to this NIC. And the the whole concept is that you're pushing something from the server down to the NIC. But in this case, you actually may be pushing from the network up to the NIC configuration and control. And that's something that wasn't really possible previously at quite the same level of performance.
1: So to put this in perspective for those listeners that aren't as familiar with what you're talking about, so we are talking about functionality like bare metal servers in Amazon Cloud, where we all know that Amazon uses some sort of overlay virtual networking, and they're not doing that on top of Rec Switch because that wouldn't scale. And if they offer bare metal servers, obviously they can't do that on the server because that wouldn't be secure. So in their case, I think they went with their own FPGA, right?
2: I believe they're probably the best to speak on that, but I think if you watch the videos about previous, I think, ReInvent conferences, they've talked about how they have a, a nick that I think came out of an acquisition that they made several years ago. I think that's been the basis of their product.
1: So this is approximately the functionality that you're talking about. That's right. Effectively migrating the network functionality that has to be separated from the server for security reasons into the NIC and lock down the NIC so that the server can't touch it?
2: Maybe not so the server can't touch it, but maybe a little bit of protection there, right? I mean, the server administrator still can you know, configure addresses, still configure VFs if they wanted to, configure everything they want. But to the, the server administrator, it looks just like a standard high performance, a standard NIC, if you will, the sort of first use case we talked about. They may or may not be aware that there is this underlying functionality, and they don't have to be.
1: And then how do you configure and manage such a smart NIC? I mean, I've seen that with Cisco UCS, but they had their own hardware that would have an out-of-band communication channel with the NIC so that they would be able to configure the NIC from the outside, from UCS manager or whatever it was. How would you do that in an open network where the only thing you have is an Ethernet uplink?
2: So there is a couple different ways you can think about it. Uh, You still could configure over the network because any of that configuration wouldn't necessarily be visible to the server. So, you know, if you want to use a standard configuration tool, Ansible, Puppet Chef, any of those things, you could configure the host like that. Because, again, it really is just another server sort of in between. Also, there is the ability to have access to a serial console on the device. So you have full console access, just as if it's any other server.
1: Ah, so you would effectively treat the NIC like any other server. It could use Pixie Boot or whatever it's called these days, download its own image, download its own configuration and then expose the inner path to the actual server and act as a switch between the network and the actual server. That's right. Exactly. That's cool. How much more expensive would this be compared to what did we call them? Uh, Performance NICs.
2: You're probably going to see a slightly different price point i mean i'll be honest one of the hardest parts about some of these projects is that i they don't ask me about pricing so i can honestly say i'm not that sure how much more expensive it is you know one of the numbers that i hear talked about pretty regularly is that let's see at a at a conference at the open v switch and dpdk conference that that happened back to back last fall in san jose someone on stage was talking about saving the cores, the server cores, and, and how much typical cloud vendors or other server vendors might save by saving cores, for example. And the number that that person gave, you can watch the videos and listen to it if you'd like, was that the annual revenue on a server is around $1,000 per core and not per socket but per core. So even if you're spending a little bit more money on a smart NIC, if you're able to move some of that load down to the smart NIC, they probably pay for themselves pretty quickly.
1: Oh, even more so if you're taxed per core or per socket, if you're buying from someone like VMware. Oh, that's, that's a great point. That's right. The other thing you mentioned in between the, let's say, performance NICs and the really smart NICs were the accelerated NICs. So what sort of acceleration would you do these days? I think we're all familiar with TCP offload and it was really just Transmit side segmentation and checksumming and things like that. So how far have things moved since then?
0: So here we are talking about different kind of acceleration. This is forwarding acceleration. So basically you have multiple ports and you see the ports as net devices. You set up bridge, uh, open v switch, DC rules, whatever routing on these particular net devices. And then the configuration is uh, kind of mirrored into the hardware. So you as a CPU don't see the packets flying anymore because it's done in the hardware.
1: Ah, So you would yet again have two typical use cases. It's either a real top of rack switch and you use Linux as the control plane to program the forwarding and various forwarding tables. Mm -hmm. And then the packet forwarding would obviously happen in hardware or we would be dead. Or as you mentioned before, you have the virtual functions for containers or VMs or what have you, and then you effectively forward between the virtual NIC that belongs to a container or a VM and the physical NIC, the actual outgoing port.
0: Yeah, but it still happens only inside the the NIC ASIC. Yeah, exactly. The CPU doesn't see that the packets.
1: So in the old days, we were offloading parts of TCP stack, and now if I got it correctly, you are effectively offloading the full packet forwarding, layer two, layer three, packet filters, the whole stuff.
2: That's right. This is now, rather than the offloads that make endpoint processing more efficient, so transmitting and reception of frames, it's the offloading of the pure forwarding between devices. You've got it 100%. That's right.
1: And I guess this is even more important than the other offloading because I was told that Linux was always pretty bad at forwarding individual packets, right? I mean, performance-wise.
2: Well, I think compared to, you know, various things whether it's DPDK or Netmap or any of those things that are purely, you know, a poll mode device where you're reading packets in and sending packets out, I think any full OS is not going to be as performant as those options. No. But that's a
0: very different use case. And also if you consider uh, if you consider switches like What we provide, it's like 3,200 gig port switch. You simply cannot pass that throughput to ordinary CPU. It's impossible. So you have to have like specific, special ASIC to do the forwarding for you. You have no other way.
1: And then whenever you try to do something intelligent like this, you always get to the same problem that somehow you have to interact with this smart hardware through some sort of a device driver. And then very quickly, we get to the horrendous land of vendor drivers and each driver using a totally different model and uh, some software vendors like Cumulus having to deal with different models by different vendors. And then the big guys are stepping in and each one of them is proposing their own abstraction layer on top of all these different vendor-specific SDKs. So did we make any progress? Did we get any better? Yeah,
3: this is exactly not what we are doing. <laughs> yeah, so originally uh,
0: it was all about the SDKs, all the vendors or the, the ASIC vendors, every single, each of them had one SDK for one family of ASICs. And it was basically a binary user space blob. And I think that uh, the main reason why this happened in the past was the fact that uh, the Linux interface doesn't really support forward offloading. And the vendors were basically just lazy to introduce it. And also there was a chicken-egg problem because when you introduce some infrastructure inside kernel, you have to have a user for that infrastructure. has Eventually what we did in the past was because the vendors were reluctant, reluctant to put any support for the ASICs inside upstream kernel. So what we did uh, with Scott Feldman in the past was we introduced our own emulated ASIC written in QMU, and we wrote the infrastructure inside the kernel on top of this emulated switch, basically. Originally, it started only by offloading a bridge, simple FDB learning and stuff like that. And then we extended the offloading possibilities for other things like routing. And now even tunneling is uh, supported, TC rules and stuff like that. So now the infrastructure is quite rich. So anyone who can easily jump in and uh, start to write their own drivers and to uh, use this infrastructure to offload it to their ASIC. So now the situation is quite different. And therefore, I am still don't really understand why the vendors are not following this model because it's proven working. I mean, what we do, we just take Linux networking model and we just push it down to the driver and down to the ASIC, And it works good. But people still are reluctant to go in this direction and invent other things like uh, SCI. I don't really understand why, to be honest.
3: Yes. So, Jerry, what you actually did, and you're sort of the evangelist of that, you reverse the equation. Instead of uh, each vendor coming and say, "Hey, I have my own hardware. This is my model. How do I? What do I do with Linux?" You say, "No, this is the Linux networking model. It's a great model that developed with people. Some of it follows IEEE specs like the Linux Bridge, right? So 8.1d.1q." And some of it, uh, the, the routing was built with people with lots of experience, maybe down to uh, on the 90s, where people like Jamal, who is not with us today, were running all those routers on and software. And these APIs came from many, many years of experience and working with with customer and deployments. And then in 2015, he said, "Hey, let's see how do we offload it on hardware, not how do we teach Linux this or that model of hardware." And it works. <laughs> That's, I think, the mind shift that w- was done initially on Switch ASIC and then to Nick ASIC, as we explained earlier.
1: Okay, so to recap, in the early days, every vendor had its own SDK. And you would have to call it to program, let's say, the forwarding tables. And then poor people like the guys from Cumulus Networks they would write this user mode translator that would listen to what other applications were installing in the Linux forwarding tables and reverse engineer that into calls to the vendor SDK. And then there were other people who believed in the universal powers of OVSDB and bypassed the Unix forwarding tables and got into an interesting mess with that. So if I got it right, what you're saying now is we have this standard API defined in the Linux kernel now, how you can push the Linux forwarding tables into the forwarding ASIC. The only thing that the vendor has to do is to rewrite their SDK to be compatible to
0: this API. Basically, you're right. I would, I'm not sure about rewriting the SDK. I would just say toss it to the trash and write a completely new driver, which implements these APIs.
1: Well, there's your answer. That's why they are not doing it.
0: <laughs> uh, I'm, not, I'm not saying it's easy. I, I mean, I, I spent the last four years working on such drivers, so but we have it now, and uh, it's uh, in pretty good shape. So that it's not that hard. We walked the hard path because we as we were writing the driver, we, we were also introducing the infrastructure bits and pieces in order to allow the offload. Now all the pieces are there, so it's much more easier to come and to implement uh, the interfaces now.
3: And it's also important to know that even you mentioned a couple of time Cumulus, that Cumulus can run on this driver. It just, it doesn't have to use this old and, and weird back translation trampoline. It's not that these drivers, it's not that Cumulus uses the networking model. They just have to apply in a very weird, on a broken way on those SDK. But you can still run the Cumulus product on those drivers, of course. So
1: effectively what you're saying is if some vendor would launch new hardware and implement this driver, then you could immediately run something like Cumulus Linux on that hardware.
0: Yeah. And also you can do more. You can like, you have your favorite distro. So just install your favorite distro on your switch and it works like out of the box. You see the ports as net devices, you can configure bridge or routing On top of that, it's be just working as you are used to on your server. So it's quite convenient.
1: <laughs> oh, that's true. The moment you have the standard API and you have the driver supplied by the vendor, you could put any Linux distro on top of that as long as they have a recent kernel version. Exactly.
2: That's the dream that I know the three of us all shared. Initially, and many others as well who participated in the phone calls and the meetings that we had at conferences and the discussions that the using standardizing on the Linux API as the way to perform both hardware and software data path was what we felt like was the right thing to do. And so now we're there with not only the, these accelerated NICs, but we're, we're also there with, uh, switching devices as well. Not only from the work that Jerry did at Mellanox, but actually, I guess there's multiple Broadcom's got And some other folks that have lower-end devices uh, are doing that too, mostly popular in like OpenWRT and similar distributions. So maybe not quite data center grade, but this is happening all over the ecosystem, and it's awesome.
1: Ah, so it's not only the data center, you have the same device drivers for like one gig NIC in my home router.
0: Yeah, it's the same model. You have multiple ports, uh, each port is represented by a net device, and... You just configure it as you are used to on the server or on the top of a switch. It's the same thing, basically. And for anyone that's used uh,
2: OpenWRT or similar and realized that they're sort of stuck on the kernel, they may have previously been stuck on the kernel version they were using for a variety of reasons, Uh, while the user space upgrades around it, uh, now they're not in that same position. They can continue to use a a fully open driver for the switch. And it's, uh, you know, thanks to the hard work from the folks that have done that.
1: Okay. So that brings us to the Linux kernel versioning. What version do I need to get this API? And what versions are supported by the vendors that are shipping the device drivers that fall under this
0: API? That's not easy question to answer. I mean, it really depends on uh, what features do you need. Like, for example, for in our case uh, of MLXSW, Whenever we add some offloading feature, we add also the infrastructure with it. So in different uh, kernel versions, you will have different features supported and different offloads supported. So we started with Spectrum ASIC like two years ago, and uh, originally it uh, supported only uh, bridge offloading, one q And now it supports, of course, much more than that. And in every kernel version, it adds uh, more features are added. So there's no easy answer to your question, really.
1: Okay, but let's say that for my home router, I want to have bridge offload because I don't want to be involved in what's going on between the ports on my home router. But for the uplink, I want to process everything in the CPU because I have to do access control lists and NAT and PPPoE and who knows what else. So... Just the basic stuff, just the bridging offload, what's the minimum kernel version where I could say, now this has a chance of running?
0: Well, the infrastructure was there like four or five years ago already, but it really depends on your particular driver. So I know that there are a couple of Marvel chips supported uh, over maybe three years, I think, and also some Broadcom drivers uh, are supported maybe two years, something like that. So Really depends on what hardware do you have. I think maybe the question
2: might be, and I'll pose this to everybody: it might be less of what kernel version do you need, and more, it does your distribution support it? And I think the answer is that at this point, for like you know later versions, recent versions, OpenWRT in that case, or more recent versions of commercial or community distributions, I think many of them have these hooks enabled. I think, Jerry, would you
0: disagree? No, I, I completely agree. I mean, if you install, for example, Fedora on our switch, you have like 95% of the features with the current version of the distribution.
2: And that's really where the power of this comes in, is that you don't need to go necessarily get your own upstream kernel to make this happen. It's made its way down into the distros because it's, these features have been there for a while. So go get the latest and you're probably ready to go.
1: And what hardware could I use with this? You already mentioned some Broadcom and Marvel chipsets in the home router space. What about data center? Who is offering something like this in the data center space?
0: So currently it's uh, only Mellanox uh, as far as I know. I'm not sure if anyone else is working on that.
2: <laughs> I would be quite happy if they would. Yeah. On the switch side, I think it's only Melanox, but on the NIC side, there's, you know, everybody's got something that can do. This hardware offload at this point, Broadcom, Mellanox, Netronome, Intel, I think everybody and more can use the same
1: infrastructure in the same model. Does that also apply to SRIOV that we already mentioned? Yes. Perfect.
0: It's the same model, basically. If you look at the embedded switch in senior v you can look at it as on the top of REC switch. It also has multiple ports. Each port goes to different VF. And each port is also represented by a separate NET device, and you can configure whatever you want on top of that, and it will be offloaded to the embedded switch. The model is quite similar.
3: Perfect. Another aspect I'd like to raise, uh, also you mentioned Linux and kernel beyond versioning. Uh, this actually t- goes back to the previous item, is that, Andy, I think you mentioned that in an earlier call that we, we had that, This thing that we are doing everything uh, full open source and upstream allows someone that wants to go the extra mile, you know, people that want to squeeze out from the hardware the the extra bits, they are getting a full open source uh, driver. And, you know, open source comes with quality. When your code is subject to the uh, review of the tough uh, and cool maintainers of our community and and your peers, the the code gets to be much more um, uh, in higher quality. And this helps someone that takes this code and want to squeeze more out of it. If you compare it to a fully closed source SDK, which I believe the quality is anything but not like this. So this is also important uh, aspect to note. You you can use Cumulus OS or someone else OS, but if you want to do your own OS and add in more secret source of your own or non secret source, this helps you a lot. I believe so.
1: Well, I totally agree with you, only there are counterexamples like OpenSSL, I think. Anyway, the other question I wanted to ask when we were talking about SmartNICs, you were saying that SmartNIC runs a full-blown Linux distro on the SmartNIC CPU. So how open is that? How can I influence what's running on my smart NIC? Is it just an open source Linux distro or is there some secret sauce involved?
2: In Broadcom's case, there's no secret sauce. It's a hundred percent right now, uh, that what we use internally for development is a Yocto based distribution, but you can also run other distributions on it. All of the patches that we have, kernel patches are upstream as well as any patches for doing any, anything else. I mean, so it's fully open. There's nothing we're trying to hide with it. The only thing that's over the time that we've developed this product and developed the software for it, the uh, only thing that's really ever appeared in the code base that wasn't open source was just not open source yet. You know, we're still working on the patches, working on final things, but we did ship out some evaluation things. But at this point, everything is upstream or on the list already going through upstream review. So it's uh, fully open. You can run anything you want on it. And the beauty of those platforms is that You give somebody something that's completely open, that has code they can recompile, and they disappear for a period of time, and they come back and they say, hey, I just ported my app to it, and it works, and it does this many packets per second, and it does this filtering, and it does this that I want. And that's the strength that comes from that strategy of being fully open.
1: Now that you mentioned packet filters, there's one other thing that we covered extensively in previous episodes. And that's Berkeley Packet Filters, and I think now it's the extended Berkeley Packet Filters, right? How does that fit into these Accelerated NICs?
2: So in the Accelerated NIC case, where you're just leveraging hardware tables, there's not really space for BPF to run in any more efficient way, uh, BPF or XDP, than it runs right now. In the full offload or Smart NIC case, you can totally run those XDP or BPF programs directly on the Smart NIC. There's support for ARM as a jitted code. I've done it. I've run XDP programs on the SmartNIC without any issue. Again, it's you know same Linux platform in the SmartNIC case.
1: So what you would do is you would define the BPF filter on the server on the main host, apply it to the interface, and then it would be compiled in ARM code and pushed down to the NIC. So all the filtering would be done in the ARM processor of the NIC and wouldn't burn the CPU cycles of your main server. That's right. And you have this working in lab, or is this something that I could use in production? Uh, it says production-ready
2: is anything BPF or XDP.
1: Uh, fair enough.
2: And I won't make a judgment there. I know it's in production plenty of places. It's been used by people who've evaluated the platform. I know that for a fact.
1: Yeah, and to use those features, you have to know enough. So by the point you got there, you are brave enough to use them in production anyway, right? That's right. So for people who don't know enough yet, how can they get fluent with these developments? Is there a website they can visit and get educated? Is there something else? Or is it just, oh, buy a new home router and download OpenWrt on it?
0: Probably you can just follow up the mailing list. That's probably the best way to do. And there is no specific uh, web page or anything, as far as I'm aware of. But I would recommend people, if they want to just play with uh, some basic stuff, they can just install QEMU and they can run the virtual machine and they can put a rocker switch, which is the emulated switch we wrote uh, with uh, with Scott Feltman and uh, they can easily try to set up the switch inside the virtual machine. That's the cheapest way to get in, basically, and to play with.
1: And if I remember correctly, the Linux networking community has a conference once every six months or so, right? And the next one is coming up in a few weeks in Prague?
0: Yeah, it will be uh, in Prague uh, from March 20th to March 22 and everyone is more than welcome to join us. It will be, will be lots of fun. And
1: how do I join the conference? Is it open, so can anyone register? And I'll add the URL to the show notes so that people who want to go there can
0: register. Yeah, you can just go to the page and fill up the registration form, and and you'll be okay.
1: Perfect. Thank you for this deep dive into uh, nicks. If people want to get in touch with you guys personally, how could they do that? Do you have a blog? Are you on LinkedIn? Are you on Twitter? And yet again, alphabetically, let's start with Andy.
2: Sure. If you would like to contact me, you can just look for me at GOSPO, G-O-S-P-O, on Twitter or LinkedIn if you're so interested. Uh, it's probably the best two ways to get in touch with me.
1: You blog, any other social media activities?
2: Uh Not extensive. To be honest, I'm really spending too much time either working on SmartNICs or being away from my devices. So those are really sort of the the two options.
1: Ah, so you're bimodal. That's right.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I heard that in one of your other podcasts that accurately describes things.
0: Yerji. Yeah, for me, it's uh, like I'm an old school person. So it's email only. (laughs) And you can look up the email address in the Git uh, of kernel easily by my name. No block, no nothing
3: that's not so bad, you know,
1: and finally, or
3: yes, I'm on jury's uh, camp, also old school guy, and you can look my name in uh, Colonel commits or girllitz, so Send send email perfect,
1: thank you. And you've been listening to Software Gone Wild. I'm Ivan Pipelnik, and I am forced to have a blog because I do all my stuff through online means. You can find me on ipspace.net where you have links to my blog, my webinars, and podcast episodes like this one. Thanks for being with us, and enjoy networking.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Software Gone Wild you want to learn more about software-defined networking, network automation, and related topics, visit sdn.ipspace.net and explore our courses, books, webinars, and podcasts.